We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to They're, you know, doing the work and talking about what it takes and what do they need. Because each one of these, there's no, you know, there's no secret sauce. What works in Dallas doesn't work in Buffalo necessarily. Uh, the reason why I'm, I'm supportive of this is because I, I want to make sure this franchise remains stable and continues to remain competitive. And uh, I think it's great for this community. And we've been able to do these stadiums in such a way that it creates a, a tremendous economic benefit too. And that's what um, I want the Bills to be successful and I want them to continue to be competitive here in Buffalo. Everybody to another edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Older Drew Gear. That's my producer Chris Krueger, and that was Roger Goodell from Jim Kelly's golf tournament, sourced from YouTube. Good old YouTube.com. Yeah, uh Hickson Boss sent it to me. He immediately. I was like, I'm trying to find this audio, I can't. Boom, two seconds, Hicksonbaugh. Dropping Dropping the video for me so I can rip that audio. Big thank you to Jay Hicks and Bob. But folks, to kick off tonight's show, to quote Chris, it's been four years and over a thousand beers, ladies and gentlemen. Last last Thursday, June 20th, was the fourth anniversary of the first time Chris and I ever sat down behind microphones and tried our damnedest to fumble our way through a podcast. I mean, I'm... (laughs) It was a test recording. I wanted to get my bearings together to being able to produce all this stuff and you to at least obtain some kind of talent behind a mic because we had to do that before starting that September. <laughs> we had to get a couple a couple of test recordings in, which I, I think we sent it to like a handful of our friends just for, for feedback. And most of them told us we were assholes. Yeah. I mean, th- I can still picture it in my kitchen crammed full of computer equipment in my one-bedroom one apartment. I mean, my apartment was on the same street as the Depew Fire Department and Police Station. So every single one of our early podcasts, if you go back and listen to them, there's a siren somewhere in the background. If you wanted to go back and play Where's Waldo, you can find it. 
<laughs> and, and I, I, but you know what? That's the thing. So few people know that, Chris, because nobody listened to us in the beginning. And I, I'm relieved that most of you weren't because it was brutal. Folks, as we do every year, you know what I mean? Every day, you know, as you get older, you like to look back on the things that you did wrong in life. Things where you fucked up, you want to look back on them as growing experiences. And here at the Rock Power Report, we believe in that as well. So Chris, raise your glass. Folks, I'm sipping on a glass of whiskey here. Southern to your rye. I want you guys to hear some of the early test audio of us trying to record a podcast. The reason being is that Rex Ryan wants... There's a reason he took a job in the same division. He said it. And he's repeated it. He didn't come here to kiss Bill's rings. He wants he wants to beat Tom Brady. He wants to beat Bill Belichick every chance he gets. Them bringing in a quarterback that we have limited tape on, not a whole lot of time to game plan for, that scares me because that smells like a trap game. It smells like a trap game. That is some of the worst audio I've ever heard. Chris, I, you, you, I'm sorry. You've come so far. Chris, was that Delilah from WJYE spinning the late night smooth jazz hits? Probably. Or, or was that a podcast about sports? Yeah. What was <laughs> you were real excited about Rex Ryan. We could hear it in your monotone <laughs> shit voice. Oh, my God. It was terrible. Even worse, folks, is the fact that we couldn't find te- clips of Chris because he literally didn't speak. No, I just, I mean... I, I wanted to. I, I prefer to speak less. This is more about you and your opinions because uh, because it took you a while to to impl- in, uh, put forth the person you are at a bar watching sports <laughs> into the microphone, folks. You just had to come full Delilah. I just as I'm sitting here thinking about it, we really have come a long way in our first in our first four years here. I mean, on a personal note. We've had a divorce, a marriage. I'm a homeowner. I've lost weight. Well, Chris's hair has gotten exponentially worse. I mean, his personality's kind of come around. No, it hasn't. (laughs) And Chris is now officially a season ticket holder. Yeah, come by our tailgates for the dips. I think you would come to one game with me when we started this. One or I would go one or two because I, I do remember in, in I think it was 2015 I came to the Cleveland game uh, with my then wife who I didn't tell that uh, I had strategically bought seats directly behind you <laughs> and I did not tell her that. Oh, and then just in terms of the podcast, I personally no longer have the enthusiasm of someone trying to land the morning gig at NPR. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Chris, it's embarrassing. I have a hard time looking at you when I listen to some of our early shows because it's like, oh, when I recorded that, I thought it sounded so good. You, th- <laughs> you thought it sounded good. I thought plus, it sounded so good. Yeah, and on top of that, the take was shit. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I'm so glad we didn't have a following back then and that we grew this thing organically because if you would throw – oh, my God – uh, Rowan Keating, Australian fan of the show, flat yes. out told us when he showed up to our tailgate, he's like, I found your podcast at the beginning and went, yeah. and he I, shivered. And I he couldn't like, listen. I couldn't listen to it. But luckily for us, he came back around, and so have a lot of you. I mean, our downloads are out of control. We're averaging 750 a week, and during the draft, we did 881 with back-to-back 1,000 download shows. 
that's literally with no we don't pay to pro- who's paying to promote this thing no we just <laughs> we don't pay to promote but we we pay to put on the show with all this equipment and Fuck we that. have a youtube channel coming so and i do it but you know why i do it because it's a hobby for me it scratches this itch that i have and it's helped my family life. My significant others no longer get waterboarded with sports talk anytime they make the mistake of asking me, hey, what's going on with the Bills? And I've had more than two beers. I mean, that's a good way That's a good way to get cornered. Yeah. <laughs> at, a, at a party with Drew Gear. I mean, it just all the places that it's taken us. I mean, we, media credentials, TV appearances here locally. We've gotten to meet and collaborate with dozens of really talented content creators. And in a lot of cases... Made not just you know podcasting and content relationships, but friendships with a lot of these people. And Chris, as we raise our glasses, we've received an untold amount of liver just liver damage. But I'm pretty sure you and I were going to do that anyway. I mean, yeah, we, we root for the Bills, exactly. <laughs> and so with that, we raise a toast to you guys, new listeners, old listeners. Those of you who aren't even Bills fans and just listen to try to make fun of us for it later. Yeah. I know you're out there. Simonelli, Snowy, Vero. Yeah, I'm talking to you assholes. We want to wish each and every one of you a sincere thank you to anyone who takes time out of their day to listen to this show, to interact with us, or just to get to know us. Because you guys really are what makes this thing ride. So cheers, Chris. Cheers. Ah, To year five. Oh, this this southern tier rye is a smooth mistress, sir. Well, I bought it when my parents and my brother were here because my brother is a huge fan of the uh, Bullet Rye Whiskey, which you are also. And I could have easily got that, but I was like, you know what, I'll get something local, and it's the same price, 37 bucks. It's got a nice oakiness to it. It's smooth. It rolls off the tongue, and it doesn't... It doesn't have the usual, I'm sure by the end of this glass I'll want to fight you, because that's whiskey, but <laughs> while I'm sipping on it, this is pretty enjoyable. So is that, that's not what you would have expected from no, Southern not Tier? No, all from a beer company. This whiskey's pretty damn good. You know what? I give it three stars on a scale that doesn't fucking matter. There we go. <laughs> Chris, let's hit these people with the Bill's News Update. In terms of actual news... I don't know what the fuck is out there. Don't ask me. I just got done telling Chris before we started recording, there is literally nothing happening. And when you go to some of these media outlets, these online magazines, these uh, certain sites that seem to focus on certain teams for various reasons, there's a lot of garbage. You got to manufacture... You got to manufacture content in the end of June, July oh, for football. Guys, this is it's hard. Me. But there are things here worth unpacking and talking about. And for me, I, I happened to stumble across one this week. Now, every Bills fan's favorite cornerback, Jaguars defensive back Jalen Ramsey, he was making waves last week when he shot an Instagram video in which he comically reiterated the fact that. That since the team's choosing to force him to write out his fifth-year option on his contract rather than trying to negotiate with him, there was no way in hell he would be offering him any kind of price break in hopes of keeping the band together on defense when he becomes a free agent. It's gotten contentious between the team and the player, to the point where he's flat out said, they, they clearly don't want me. 
which I'm sure is far away from the truth because for as much as we all think the guy's kind of an asshole with a big mouth, you can't argue that he's not a good defensive back. I mean, he is a good defensive back, but, it, I mean, it, he's not going to, like, single-handedly help the team win games. Hey. I mean, look at the Jets with Darrell Revis. They paid him all that money. What were the Jets? I know. I mean, Trash. It's, it's a funny concept to a lot of people, though. A guy who's under contract stating that he's unhappy with what he signed and not wanting to wait to be paid what he feels like he's due now. And it's interesting to me that instead of threatening a holdout, like a lot of other players have done throughout the course of history, instead, he's going to show up, but he's betting on himself and telling the team that they're going to be sorry when he does. It's ballsy. And I like ballsy. All right, I do. And that shouldn't surprise anyone coming from Jalen Ramsey, the guy who literally went out of his way to call half of the quarterbacks. He knew he'd be playing against in the upcoming season just trash and then proceeded to lose to most of them. <laughs> there was a tweet today that I saw that he's he's not going to diss quarterbacks anymore. Yeah, it's probably because he doesn't want to look stupid again. Every single time he has to play a game against one of these people, that he you can think of guys dog shit. Chris, we all have coworkers or people, or at least in our field, who we look at and we think to ourselves, man, that guy sucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you don't say it. No. <laughs> you don't say it. So here's the thing. I can understand there's a lot of people who are shaking their heads and talking about what a jerk he is and how he doesn't deserve this, that, the other. I'm not going to argue on any of that, but what I, I will say this, it raises an interesting question. Is signing high-end rookies or, or young players who you know are a part of your plan going forward to contracts prior to them being due to truly hit free agency, is it a wise practice? Especially for a team like the Buffalo Bills that might have a few of their own coming up here shortly. To frame this for you, this past May, the Dolphins signed cornerback Xavier Howard a guy who's been riddled with knee problems and is fresh off his very first Pro Bowl nomination to the longest extension for a defensive back in NFL history. He's going to be the highest paid cornerback in the NFL in total cash value in 2019, despite a history of injuries and the fact that he was set to enter his fifth-year option season. The team had no obligation to extend him at all. They could have let him ride this out. And so that I laughed at it when I first heard it because that seems crazy. I mean, if this were Madden and I were drafting a team from absolute scratch, Howard isn't anywhere near the top of my list in terms of number one cornerback. And at the same time, he's being paid like it. And then you look at the Eagles. The Eagles also managed to avoid going into Carson Wentz's fifth option year because they believe he's part of the franchise long term. So they signed him to a contract extension that keeps him in Philly for another four years. But at no point... Is he ever get, Chris, we're so used to seeing quarterback salaries play leapfrog, right? Yeah. Everybody who signs the next one, you're the highest paid. Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't played a full NFL season yet, and for a short period of time, he was the highest paid player in the NFL. That's how crazy the quarterback salary has gotten. By extending Wentz before his fifth year option season, they're able to lock him up, and at no point is he the top cap hit for the quarterback position in the NFL during that extension. Well, so what, two years ago he had had the ACL tear, and then last year he came back from the ACL tear to, I mean, they they made the the playoffs. 
No. No. Okay. No, because they were in line for the they were in line for the playoffs, and then he got hurt, and Nick Foles came in and carried him to a Super Bowl. Well, I'm talking. That was two years ago. This past season, he also got hurt again in December. Back to back Decembers, they were set to make the playoffs, and he got hurt, and another quarterback came in and. Okay, so when when healthy, he's pretty damn good, but yes. because you're injured, you kind of don't have to offer him top value. But I guess based here's on the his thing. injury history. You look at traditional mindset in the NFL when you're talking about contracts and how they're handled. Teams like to squeeze every ounce of leverage they have out of every contractual situation. So this seems like a dynamic shift in philosophy. And it would seem to fly in the face of conventional wisdom, right? I personally, now that I've looked at the numbers and I've done some research, it seems like genius. It makes sense for an NFL GM on a few fronts. I mean, first, it sends a message to the locker room. That you as a GM are going to do whatever you can to take care of players who prove their worth on the football field, rather than hold them hostage using the mechanics of rookie NFL contracts. I mean, just organizationally, doesn't that buy you a little bit of goodwill? Yeah. If you're talking about trying to build organizational trust between players, current players and future free agents... It's good to send the message that, look, if you play like a guy who's part of our future, we will take care of you. We won't put you over a barrel. We're going we're gonna to try to be fair in a world where no one is trying to be fair. Everyone is trying to get something out of you. You know what I mean? Everyone wants to get something over somebody else. And it also might help you in terms of future cap savings. You think about it. Every year, contracts get bigger and bigger and bigger at certain positions. So that leads me to take a look at where the Bills are through that kind of lens. First of all, you have Trey White. Okay? He'll be on his fifth-year option, which is, by that point, with inflation, going to be up around $10 million in 2021, and he'll be an unrestricted free agent in 2022. So far, throughout his career, he's been one of the better covered corners in the NFL. Runner-up for 2017's Defensive Rookie of the Year. Two-time selection is one of pro football focuses top players under 25, and he is a cornerstone piece of our secondary. I mean, our safety play is good, but our safety play works because our cornerbacks are also good. Right? Yeah. You sure you don't want to let him walk and bring in Reuben Foster? <laughs> that, my anger over that pick is never going to go away. You're never going to let that die. No, I'll it's beat okay. that like a dead horse. Uh, and then linebacker Matt Milano. He doesn't have a fifth-year option because he was a fifth-round draft pick. He'll be an unrestricted free agent after the 2020 season. Okay, He'll have a year, I believe, of restricted free agency. And then after that, he's loose in the wind. You look at Matt Milano and what he's become for us. Last season, I mean, he played half a season his first year. You know, Ramon Humber held him off for a long time, grabbing that starting job. You remember that? Yeah, it wasn't until, like, I think, a li- like the week Oakland eight or nine. Game. Eight or nine. Game. The Oakland game was his first game with extended play, and he had a fumble recovery for a touchdown, a bunch of tackles, and he never gave up the starting gig again. This past year, even though he was injured, what, two-thirds of the way through the season? Like, it was uh, like week 10? I think he had injured in like week 13. Mm. There, it was one of the final home games. Okay. Well, either way, in 2018, according to Pro Football Focus, he was the second-ranked linebacker in the AFC East. 12th in the entire NFL in overall grade. He he was the tw- he had the 25th ranked pass rush grade of all linebackers in football 
And the third lowest covered, well, the third lowest covered grade. So in terms of lower grade, I'm talking about quarterback percentage going against him of any linebacker in football. Week 14 injured. Okay. Right at the end of the season. So then, so, so Chris, it sounds an awful lot like these two young players are important pieces to a defense that ever since Sean McDermott showed up and those two players have been on the roster has been pretty damn good. Yeah. Okay. They also play positions that are not, if you want to talk about elite production or if you want to talk about high-end production, it's not exactly plug-and-play in terms of trying to replace them. Would you also agree with me on that? Uh, yeah. They, uh, they're pretty good for what they do on our defense. Fucking right. So now think about them and then consider the contracts we just saw signed by first-time free agents this past offseason. Quarterback Xavier Howard, $15 million a year average annual salary. Linebacker C.J. Mosley, $17 million average salary. $17 million for an inside linebacker. Linebacker Quan Alexander, $13.5 million. I mean, considering that there's only one player on that list and you can even try to argue with me is a household name. That is a crazy amount of money. Chris... And then there's a list of players hitting free agency between now and then that could very well drive the market up even further for these players' services. Inside linebacker Miles Jack, who's been pretty good for the Jaguars. Cornerback Kendall Fuller. Cornerback Jalen Ramsey. Again, he's a name. He's popular. He's going to get paid by someone. He gets turnovers. He's aggressive in tackling in the box. He's a playmaker, Chris. I understand what you're saying about Darrell Revis not winning a Super Bowl, and you're right. I mean, I tend to think that skill position players aren't what wins you titles. It's quarterback, offensive line, and defensive line, and then everything else you can kind of build off of that. Yeah. But with that exactly. said, you still need talent. You still have to have talented players. So also, so, so now think about this, Chris. If you're talking about not wanting to have to shell out the highest salary in football, wouldn't it make sense to get out in front of those extensions? It's like you're paying now to avoid having to pay more later. Yeah, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the end of the season, so Gene, like whenever we, our season is officially over, whether we're playoffs or not, then Bean can start talking to Trey White about an extension. I'm getting that correct, right? Yes. Okay, and then in March, you're going to have Fuller, Ramsey, King all up for UFAs, and then they'll dictate the market, so if you wait any longer... Trey White's going to see that and go, "Well, I'm better than Kevin King and Fuller, Fucking so right. I want more. I want more money than what they got." And then the other side of this is that why wouldn't you, if you can take advantage of getting out in front of a situation like that, when you're talking about being exposed to having to spend more money, and the fact that the Buffalo Bills are top ten in cap space with all of their future draft picks still under their control in the next two seasons. This is a strategy that Brandon Bean and the brass over at One Bills Drive absolutely should be taking a long, hard look at. I mean, unless you want to be looking at a long, hard look at Trey White shooting Instagram videos in a couple years from a Sabres game, talking about how much he's going to miss this. I mean, Chris, you don't want to get into these long, protracted things with important players to your team. Here's two franchises that just showed you the way to get there. Yeah, and I would assume if Bean wants Trey White to be a part of the future, then as soon as that season ends, he's on the phone with his agent, and then within a couple weeks, get a deal hashed out. I don't know, man. 
it's it's going to be interesting, but it's definitely something that this team and a lot of other people out there should be thinking about. The future. The future, Chris. It's such a... It's such an interesting concept when you think about what you think you have laid out in front of you. The team officially is broken for the preseason, and the players have all gone their separate ways for a few months. The next six weeks represent a chance for them to just kind of sit back, relax, get ready for what should be a really grueling training camp. I mean, I'd argue that for the first time in a long time, Chris, the overall talent level of this team is good enough on both sides of the ball that there is going to be some really hard-fought competition for these position battles. And some really talented players are going to be left on the outside looking in. Yeah, I think that'll happen on the offensive line. On the offensive line, there's guys, I mean, you could argue our wide receiver group isn't top flight, but there's a lot of different skill positions there. We have a crowded running back room. There's going to be guys who, I mean, think about how few of them play special teams. Yeah. There are go, there, there's going to be some things going on here, some real jockeying around, and it's going to be tough. You know, as a fan, this has been widely celebrated as a home run of a free agency period and a solid overall draft from Brandon Bean. And the vibe around everybody in the fan base is pretty optimistic. Even among people who I know are pessimists. Uncle Pat. Uncle Pat. Bob Kateris' uncle. This guy. He's like Jerry Sullivan without the newspaper to cry into. And yet, he's slowly coming around to this idea that the Bills could be good. They could have something going on. <laughs> I mean, some of these people, Chris, are pessimists about everything in their life, not just Buffalo sports. So to hear them talk about how they're excited for the upcoming season is a complete change in thinking. We have a lot as a fan base to be encouraged about heading into the offseason, more so than most seasons. So obviously, somebody would have to come along at the last minute and chuck a baby Ruth into the deep end of my swimming pool. It's not that we haven't had this in every market size. So stadiums are important to the franchise. They're, they're important to the, um, the competitiveness as well as importance for the fans. Uh, you know, the fans expect a higher quality stadium than they did 20 years ago. And more technology and more uh, of the things that will bring them out of their homes to go to a football game. Roger Goodell from Jim Kelly's golf tournament a couple weeks ago. Of course! Too good of a time, Roger. Of course. Oh. We have to evacuate and get everyone out of the fucking pool now. Because Roger showed up. Thanks. Asshole. Of course we would have to head into this lull in the just news cycle and the action of football with a little uncertainty thrown into the mix for us. Now, folks, this stadium issue is something that I'm fascinated by. And since I host the damn show, you're all coming with us because we're going to take a walk down the road to this stadium conversation. I'm pretty sure everybody wants to hear this. Well, and this is it, guys. Don't worry because this isn't some rehashing of the same old shit that already everybody has already heard. Okay? In fact, Chris, just to avoid this, let's recap all the bullshit every fan out there already knows. First of all, what we know. The NFL has been pretty clear that a new stadium experience for the Bills is a necessity. It was made a part of the vetting process of the Pagulas when they got voted in by the owners group, right? Yeah. Okay. Developers, including the Pagulas themselves, have been buying up land all over the city in anticipation of the stadium landing in one of a few locations. 
downtown near the hockey arena, the waterfront, canal side area, Exchange Street in Buffalo, New York, Niagara Falls, and across the street from the existing stadium, which is currently owned by the county. Are you talking about an ECC? I mean, Bernie's going to clear all that. No more student debt. Get rid of ECC South. We don't need that shit. Put a stadium there. Chris, are you talking about bulldozing uh, scholastic uh, like universities and things like that? Yeah, Bernie's got it covered. <laughs> I, I don't quite think that was the point. Oh, God. There are also more than a few hurdles that everybody's familiar with that stand in our way. Every location comes with its own set of issues and pitfalls. None of them is perfect. The New York State Legislature announced earlier this year that they're projecting a $100 million deficit in the state's budget, and the local economy doesn't have much else in the way of taxability. Miami funded their stadium renovation by taxing hotels, but it's Miami. Vegas? Vegas' stadium is primarily being funded from the hotel and casino industry in the form of an excise tax. And L.A. was privately funded by this mustachioed jackass who's literally a living, breathing caricature of every shitty 80s, uh, you know, rich bad guy in every every terrible 80s movie. Have you seen that mustache? The yeah. man did not make X-rated films, folks. I don't know why he has that thing plastered to his stupid face. <sighs> We've talked about this in previous shows. The Pagula family is fairly leveraged at this point. When Ralph Wilson bought the team, he bought it for what? I think he said $50,000? Something like that. Okay. We knew coming into the sale of the team that any new ownership group was going to inherit a lot of new debt just by purchasing the team in the first place. As well as the Pagulas also owned the Buffalo Sabres. So financing on their own isn't exactly something that they're going to be easily capable of just stumbling into. You know what I mean? They, they're rich, but even that has its limitations. And so, I mean, that's, that's essentially everything that's considered common knowledge regarding the stadium situation. And since I'm a nerd when it comes to this topic, I've dug further into things here in regards to the nuts and bolts of a stadium deal. And I've got to tell you that it doesn't make me feel a whole lot better about things. First of all, I've got a list of reasons why sizable public money might not be coming. The rosiest of outlooks there seem to come from this idea, which I gotta say, I, I at one point held that as the only NFL team that actually resides within the borders of New York State and generates tax revenue for it, after the right amount of politicking, they would inevitably fork over whatever cash was necessary to make a stadium deal happen. I gotta tell you, I don't know how viable an option that's gonna be, Chris. So, I was just taking a look at infrastructure here, just for the city. Just, you know, you start Googling around different questions. That's usually how I start research, is I ask broad questions, and then you start zeroing in on things you want to know more about as they pop up. The first thing that came up was the fact that Erie County has a water crisis. And no, it's not anything as, you know, it's, we're not Detroit. Okay, no, we're, <laughs> This isn't Flint, Michigan. We we're yeah, we're not Flint. But with that said... In 2016, it was reported by the Buffalo News that over 600 miles of the water pipes here in Erie County are over 100 years old. Come to find out, Erie County has a highly acidic soil that just eats away at all kinds of underground conduit, water pipes, the whole nine. According to reports I pulled from the Erie County Water Authority's website, you know, they, they put out an annual report. So I went back three years and started looking over these things. 
There were approximately 1,400 quote-unquote emergency water main breaks in 2018, which cost $2.4 million to repair. Over the course of the year, $28 million is the most that the organization has to allocate towards repairs of the pipelines around the county. And that's all right now driven by user fees. So anybody who pays a water bill, that's where all of the money that the water authority is using to fix these things is coming from. They get no state assistance. They get no state money. This is all they have. They've petitioned New York State for help under Governor Cuomo's Clean Water Infrastructure Act of 2017, which was earmarked at $2 billion to help counties around New York State, which is great. Except repairing all 600 substandard miles that exist in western New York would cost over a billion dollars. And you can bet your ass there's no way western New York is going to get a billion dollars of a two billion dollar statewide fund, right? Correct. So we've got fucking problems here. Real substantial problems that affect people on a day to day basis that need to be paid for. And most of that's going to have to come from the state at some point. Because it's clear year over year as these water main breaks and as these, you know, you see it, you see all the construction that happens around Chitawaga, my, my neighborhood, Chitawaga, West Seneca has been one of the hardest hit. You see, last summer there was flooding because the storm drain system wasn't up to, wasn't up to standard. And it flooded hundreds of people's homes who didn't have flood insurance. So they all just took that one on the chin. There's a real infrastructure problem here that exists that needs to be addressed. And so if you're talking about petitioning for taxpayer dollars, I can think of this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of things that I think would be deemed more important than a football stadium. Right, Chris? Yeah. Then, since we're on the topic of infrastructure, the cost of new infrastructure. I mean, it's not a secret. All of the stadium locations that fans like to throw around here, there's only one of them that wouldn't require a massive overhaul of both the transit system and also the electrical system and the grid and everything else that it would take to power something that size. And that's where it currently sits in Orchard Park, New York. It's really easy for people to sit on their couch with a beer and gloss over all the physical limitations the downtown area of Buffalo would have supporting an NFL stadium. Chris, my wife just ran the corporate challenge. That sees a crowd of less than 10,000, and that caused a traffic nightmare. You've been to enough hockey games, Chris. How many people show up on a fur and game? Nine. Okay, so 9,000 people. No, 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 no. Nine. <laughs> Nine people. Nine people. Okay, so when the team isn't a raging tire fire, how many people show up on average? If we if we're borderline playoff contention in like late in the season, eighteen thousand sellouts. Okay, so if you can, so let's find a middle ground between nine and eighteen thousand. Twelve. <laughs> twelve people. We'll call it. We'll call it twelve. Twelve thousand. 12,000 people have been known to choke up the entire area, the Skyway, all the side streets leading to the 90. There is no easy ingress and egress of more than 10,000 people from the downtown city of Buffalo. So what you're probably saying? They can always just build more roads and fix the traffic setup and fix that problem. No, Hey, Jiffy. In April 2019, it was announced that seven bridges of the, the 990, the New York State 990, which is a stretch of highway approximately 6.4 miles in length. It connects the 290, which is an extension of the New York State 90, which runs through Pennsylvania, throughout the state of New York, and into Massachusetts. 
an offshoot called the 290, which essentially connects the North Towns to the rest of everything else. The 990 is a six-mile stretch that connects the outskirts of Amherst to the rest of society. I mean, we're talking about places like what? Lockport. Lockport. Yeah, who'd want to live there other than Paul Wineski? <laughs> uh, Paul, and I think only Paul. I think there's like five. I think it's like the the attendance at Sabres games. That's the number of people who want to live in Lockport. Nine. But um, it's six point four miles. It's going to be rehabbed in the coming year. It won't be finished until last next summer, and the rehab work consists of seven bridges, not new builds. Seven bridges, and it's going to cost six point three million as of today. Not accounting for the inevitable cost overruns that go. I mean, every construction project has them. So from that, I take away this: existing bridges. You don't even have to build anything new. Take almost a year to update. Not even all of them, just seven of them, Chris. <laughs> for those seven, which account for so much less of the six point four miles, it's going to take twelve months. And it's going to cost $6.3 million. That's literally a million dollars for each mile of the highway on seven bridges. So take that in your head and imagine how much an entire highway must cost. If small chunks of a six-mile stretch of road are going to cost $6 million, imagine what, you would, what it would cost to build a highway in an already developed urban area, which would require additional civil engineering, planning, research, that alone, before you even put a shovel into the ground, might cost you dozens of millions of dollars. And by the time you're done, you could be talking about an infrastructure project here in the city of Buffalo that costs hundreds of millions of dollars. And we haven't even gotten to a stadium yet. You're just talking about roads and highways to accommodate a stadium down there. Chris, we've got water pipes that don't work. We're going to build new highways for a stadium that... that you see where I'm going with this. Well, now I wouldn't. Based on the Denver game from two years ago, mm-hmm. remember how hot it was? They ran out of water, and they were just giving people tap water. If our pipes downtown are that fucked, I don't want that situation downtown. It's citywide. It's citywide. They run out of water in a downtown countywide. stadium, it's and I got to use Erie County's shit city pipes. And then the population crunch. You know, it's pretty easy for people from places like New York City and Dallas and L.A. to poke fun at the city of Buffalo over everything, from the quality of our public transportation system to our lack of five-star hotels and obnoxious upscale dining stuff. I don't need it. But the reason for it is twofold. One, population size, and two, average income levels. Again, this comes into play when you're talking about subsidizing professional sports. We've beaten the topic of income level to death on this podcast in the past. So I'm not going to drag all of that back out. But it is worth noting that we annually appear on Forbes' list of most vulnerable sports cities. Because of all cities with an NFL franchise, we have the 32nd ranked household income. Not surprising. No. In fact, no. I think this year for the first time we're 31st. We're going to talk about that with our guests in a few minutes. Then you've got this strange dichotomy of population. Now, if you want to talk about raw numbers... The Bills aren't last in terms of population, but the only city smaller is Green Bay. And that's a place where the citizens already figured out decades ago that if they wanted to ensure that they would never lose their football team, everybody who lived there had to become a, ta- had to become a stakeholder. 
They are the NFL's only population-subsidized football team. Okay? Because they didn't want to lose them, and they knew they were a small city. Now, Chris, what were you telling me about the population of Buffalo this weekend? Uh, when my parents were here, we went to the Buffalo History Museum, and they had, by decade, the total population of Buffalo. So if you go back to, you know, the early 70s when, you know, it was announced that they were going to build uh, Rich Stadium, and I think it was built in 73, they broke ground in 72, so I would assume sometime end of 70, 71 is when they, you know, all of the politicking got finalized, that all right, we're going to do this, build a new stadium. At that time, Buffalo is like a shade under half a billion people. And you got places, you know, like Bethlehem Steel is, um, you know, running, is running the city. And now we are a shade under a quarter of a billion. So you build that new stadium with, you know, close to 500 million people in your city. All right, yeah, we're going to build an 80,000 seat stadium, which is what it started at. Now it's down to about 71. So if you're gonna, if for me, if if you're, you're gonna go new stadium, you, I don't think you can ex- exceed fifty thousand. Well, see, and so this is just it though. And the thing you just hit on, decreasing that just decreased. The population here in the city of Buffalo has been halved since the time that the original stadium, currently New Era Field, was built. Yes, why? It's not good. First of all, the expiration of tax incentives over the course of uh, there was a lot of tax incentives doled out about a decade ago that were written to lure businesses here to Buffalo. As those in- incentives expire, those companies are leaving. As the companies leave, so do people, people who are trying to find work. Closure of brick-and-mortar retail centers and the loss of a lot of major corporations. I mean, Ingersoll Rand and I believe Dresser Rand. There's another. There's two of the different Rand categories that have closed operations here in western New York and in the even the Cattaraugus area, who have just ceased operations. New Era Cap. New Era. The, the company that has its name on the side of the stadium just closed down its Buffalo Center of Operations. HSBC, one of the world's largest banks and one of the few Fortune 500 companies that we had here in Buffalo, is no longer a presence. We're no longer a part of their footprint. And Chris, remember, the tallest building in downtown Buffalo had their insignia on it. And as you drive by, if you look close enough, you can still kind of see the outline of it up there. Yeah, written in filth. It's it's crazy to me. Bethlehem Steel. Even even recently, the 43 North competition. Here in Buffalo, it was a, it was a state-funded initiative called the 43 North Competition, designed to fund and foster local entrepreneurship. The problem with it is, is that these winners, once they win, they sign commitments to stay in Buffalo for a few years and foster their business in exchange for state subsidy. But they're leaving as soon as that, as soon as the clock runs out on that. So we're not seeing any new job creation here. And we could argue about the politics involved until we use up all of the air in this room and suffocate to death. Probably should have put Tesla on this list. I mean, Chris, if we were being honest, I would rather suffocate to death in this room with you and that stupid haircut of yours than argue politics with anybody. So don't tweet me. If you do, what you get in response, you're not going to like. But the emerging reality here is that we're, as the smallest NFL city, we are getting smaller. And we're losing more opportunities for corporate sponsorship, which weren't great to begin with. It's not a good look. 
And the one thing we have going for us, Chris, is that it's interesting. Despite our depressed population size, the game attending population may be one of the smallest of any privately owned franchise. Things are interesting in terms of TV and seem to kind of rebut this notion of, quote unquote, we need a new stadium to be competitive. Now, remember back when they had blackout rules and blackout restrictions? Yeah, I hated that. They used a 75-mile radius. Okay, 75 miles was the qualifier to dictate what the blackout rule was going to be. It's how they identified major, you know, primary markets, secondary markets, and who, who would get blacked out. If you looked at just right now our primary market, we'd be ranked 26th in the NFL in terms of TV. But if you expand that radius from 75, just another 15 miles, okay, take it to 90. Most regional and the majority of regional broadcasts do. Most broadcasts, I mean, the NFL, you remember, they, they, they like to hold that, like they ran that shit with an iron fist. Well, typically. Blackout policy. Well, well yeah, but typically when uh, we were in season and I read you off the broadcast team, you know, you go to 506sports.com, you could see a coverage map. And whenever we're on, we bait, most of New York will get to see us. Absolutely. So if you take that 75-mile rule and you expand it just an extra 15 miles, that puts you into the Toronto area and, and Syracuse markets. And, and so when you look at the numbers available in 2014 before the blackout rule was lifted, that would have bumped us up the list to number four in all TV markets for any NFL team. Guys, I'm not going to lie. I think that's the rub, and I think it's part of the reason why the Bills are still here. And we all hate Russ Brandon, but the concept of the Toronto series and trying to get Toronto fans into the Buffalo Bills was a marketing ploy. It was a way to keep the Wolves at bay by saying, look, we're going we're gonna to actively try to reach out to this massive market that's still technically within our boundaries. It's right there for the taking if you guys want to engage it. I mean, Chris, I don't know about you. I... Despite being terrible in a lot of in a lot of other facets, Canadians enjoy themselves some NFL football. It's just that every single one of them I've met's a Patriots fan or a Cowboys. The only one that I know that does is Rico from Buffalo Fanatics. <laughs> but the fact is, when they talk about Buffalo, when you hear Roger Goodell making comments like he did in the intro about competitive and about how we're still stable and viable. There's something here in Buffalo, because we are on the doorstep of some major markets, and all, to, all told, I mean, Chris, think about it this way, and you, this is something you're a big, you know a lot about, in terms of just production and trying to produce different things. Our current facilities, if this place was built in the 70s and only remodeled a couple times, we don't have the facilities that it takes to put on major broadcasts. I would assume if you're doing Sunday night, Thursday night, Monday night, you put a little more into the production of that game because it's the only game happening at that time. I would assume the broadcast booth from which they do, you know, national broadcasts is might be a little small, and you probably nowadays have more production people in that room. You know, some of the cabling within the stadium could be not up to date. I mean, I don't know how easy it is to change any of that, but I mean. I would think that that might play a part in why we don't get primetime games. Well, it's a, I wouldn't doubt that. And so when you hear Roger Goodell make comments of the team being competitive, 
I have a feeling that that's what he's talking about, is this idea that the team has to remain competitive and has to be able to be a team that we can put on national TV and help justify the fact that we split TV revenue with you guys. Because you are on the doorstep of these major markets, you have the ability to be such a draw for so many people. If we could just get you guys to be a more attractive, because obviously they care about asses in the seats, but Chris, let's face it, the NFL doesn't rely, hockey is a sport, folks, that relies on gate revenue. Hockey is very much a sport, because they don't own most of their broadcast rights. I mean, we see it all the time where there are star-studded NHL games that should be broadcast on primetime TV, and they're not because some obscure network in some other part of the country owns the broadcast rights. Football doesn't have that problem. They control their own destiny because they have these networks with an iron fist, and they make crazy amounts of money off of them. So for a city like Buffalo, it absolutely makes sense with all of these eyes at their disposal. Because TV revenue, not gate revenue. I mean, yes, they'd like to make more money off asses in the seats. That's a given. But the TV revenue, this is more of a, hey, we need to be able to utilize you as for primetime games, for holiday games, for things that are going to draw a lot of eyes. We need that. We need to be able to put you guys on TV. And if we can't do that, then we don't see a reason to justify continuing to share TV revenue with you. Isn't that fair, Chris? It's a fair conclusion to draw, I think. It totally is. So with that, when you look at this, though, stadiums aren't about eyes outside of this production idea that we're talking about. I mean, they're not for the audience at home. They're for creating revenues for cor- from corporate sponsorship and game-attending population, both of which are getting smaller by the year here in Buffalo. So now, once again, politics aside... Imagine I were bringing you, each one of our listeners out there right now, an opportunity to invest in a product. And I tell you that that product has a a dwindling consumer base, might force you to utilize capital that you're going to need elsewhere, and it has a return on investment that isn't only murky, but isn't exactly popular with everybody. I mean, Chris, there are an untold number of books out there already about what a terrible investment for cities stadiums are. One of the best examples, look at the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. The Oracle Center. Yeah, those assholes that couldn't win the title. They created the Oracle Center. They completely revamped it to to appease the Golden State Warriors. And now the Golden State Warriors are picking up town and moving down the bridge. Where are they going? San Francisco? I don't know. Wherever it is they're going. They're getting a new stadium. They're sticking that city with like $60 million, $70 million in unpaid and un, you know, unattainable revenue that they lent out, that they'll never get their hands on. Taxpayers fronted that money, and they're never getting it back. Because ultimately, these contracts are always drafted to favor the team, not the county, not the state. Yeah, even in baseball, you could look at what the, the Miami Marlins are playing in, or, or even the uh, Atlanta Braves. Their new stadium... They made a vote in Cobb County. They didn't even take it to a public vote. They just illegally bypassed the public vote. You can look this up. You can Google this. This is a real thing. The politicians of Cobb County, Georgia, completely bypassed public vote and just streamlined this new stadium in for the Atlanta Braves to play in. In which that just opened, I think, what, last year, two years ago? Yeah. And... The stadium that they were playing in, Turner Field, was built in 1996 for the Olympics with the 
with a caveat that once the Olympics were done, it was going to be converted into a baseball stadium. So that lasted. <laughs> that didn't even last 20 years, Jesus. and they got a new stadium. Jesus Christ. See, folks, and that's the predicament we're in right now. New York State, Erie County, and the Buffalo Bills. And it's going to become this weird dance and this massaging of different things that everybody wants. But right now, things don't look great. I mean, if you're talking about a publicly subsidized stadium, it's hard to envision how you work that out. But that's why we're bringing this. So with that in mind, I guess, we're bringing in a guest tonight to talk to who's meticulously gone over a situation similar to this and lived it both as a fan and as a content producer. And with that, folks, I want to introduce tonight's tonight's guest, Mr. Derek C. Apollo from Rams Talk. Derek, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Folks, for those of you who have caught the uh, roundtable episodes that Derek has been kind enough to host, you know, he, he, it's funny, we met Derek... Last year. He approached us about joining him and a couple other podcasters doing a roundtable discussion about the NFL. And he said, hey, you guys are, you know, AFC football and you're from the East Coast. It'll be good. We'll get a mix of personalities and different people. And I went on his show bombed and hopefully didn't do so poorly that he doesn't invite (laughs) us back. (laughs) But he has written previously for Yahoo Sports and he's also done a lot of works over his blog and podcast Rams Talk. How is all that going? Going wonderful. We're growing daily. That's fantastic. So much we have a new podcast, so you know, really? we just keep going. You've got two podcasts now. I host two. I'm with I have Rams Talk Radio and I also have Talk and Halos on our network. So we, we cover the Angels and we cover the Rams. Awesome. That that's really cool. Congratulations to you guys for growing. And uh hopefully we're gonna get an invite to the next round. <laughs> well, yeah, we kinda have to. We have to get our predictions out there so we can have our uh, our new trophy, remember? Oh yeah, and hopefully uh I'm not a, mine aren't as outlandish as the Jaguars making the Super Bowl. Jesus. <laughs> Who knows? Now I can't believe. Can you believe how badly that episode went? It did, it, came, it became more about celebrating our failures than anything else. Oh, absolutely! It was a parade of failure. It was, in fact, folks. I'm gonna to, I'm gonna link that in the in the art in the description of tonight's show. I urge you to go listen to it because now that you know how the season played out, you're gonna find it really funny. Because we were serious. We thought that we knew what we were talking about, and very few of us actually got things right. But it's worth the listen. Now. As an exercise we like to do with all new new guests on the show, we like to kind of establish your fandom. You know what I mean? It lends a little credibility to what it is you're, you're bringing to the table here. You have been a Rams fan for how long? I go the dawn of time. <laughs> I think dinosaurs were walking the earth and they were probably drinking Seagram's. Ah, <laughs> yes, Seagram's outpaces everything. I mean, this, it, it does. people will be doing Seagram's challenges long after we're gone, Chris. Yes. Uh, the truth, I, I'd say I was eight, maybe nine, nine, okay. and I'm 40 now. So that was, you know, right when I started picking up sports, I, I, the Rams fell into my lap and the, L, the other L.A. teams did as well. And, I, well, and that's what I was going to say. So if you go back that far, they were an L.A. team at the time that you started liking the Rams. Yes, they were. Okay. So that kind of launched into your you know, love of the team. And then... Have you been – now, they moved to St. Louis, which I know you've talked about in the past. They got closer to you. They were only five mm-hmm. hours away, so it became a little more feasible for you to go to the occasional game. Uh, would you say that you rooted for them as much when they left L.A. and when they got to St. Louis, or did that have any impact on your fandom? 
Well, the only thing I didn't like was the name change to me never. St. Louis Rams never sounded right. Matter of fact, you could say Cleveland Rams never sounded right because they were in Cleveland first. Yep. Los Angeles Rams sound right. And other than that, though, my, my mentality is just what you said. They're moving. I moved. I was a military brat who fell in love with the team when I was living there. I moved back home to Ohio. Who was I a pass judge on the team moving somewhere else as well? So I stuck with my team, and they've been my team forever and a day. Awesome. So, folks, he's been he's, – our guest is extremely knowledgeable. He's been covering the team for a long time. And one of his areas of expertise, multiple articles posted by Yahoo Sports, multiple articles, articles written over his own blog about the relocation of a sports team. I mean, that's been the topic we just spent 20 minutes banging our listeners' eardrums over. So I want to take you back to the beginning of this because essentially what I want to do is I want to talk to somebody who's lived through a similar set of circumstances. You know, Roger Goodell comes out at the end of the season and here we are, Bills fans are high on the horse. We're thinking, oh shit, we've knocked this one out of the park as far as off seasons go. And then here comes Roger Goodell with the, well, you know, this stadium issue, it's still here. Like, I picture him like an evil version of the Monopoly Man sometimes. And it feels like he just pops up to remind us that there's still this looming danger overhead that it just it's like a rainy cloud on a day where you're planning a picnic. So for someone who's lived through this, first of all, when the first talk began about a new stadium for the St. Louis Rams when they were in St. Louis... I think it was the Edward George. Edward Jones Dome. Edward Jones Dome. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Even the name probably brings back some memories. But uh, what, for, first of all, let's start with ownership. Fan outlook from the beginning of all this. What was the view at the time leading up to the stadium conversation of Stan Kroenke? The, in terms of... Like 2010 when he bought the team, well, or yeah, that's later what I'm on. About. Like so, leading into this whole conversation of hey, the Rams need a new stadium here in St. Louis. Was, well, I'm assuming he had to be pretty well liked by the fan base. He was. He was a Missouri boy, you know. Stan Musial, E. Stanley Kroenke. He was named after Stan Musial. He went to Missouri University, you know, in Columbia. He had all of the credentials for being a quote unquote Missouri guy. And then when he buys it team and he's down and he talks to journalists, I think it was Bernie Miklos, and tells him, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, I am going to do what I can to keep the team here. I'm, I'm going to, they're going to stay. Then they all took it as, well, they're staying. But mm-hmm. the reality goes back 20 years before that, even before Kroenke even bought the team. And that's what many people in the media there really weren't willing to look at deeply. As a matter of fact, I think they believed in Kroenke so much that they were naive up until the very end when he burned them. So, see, and that's what's so interesting to me because right now there's a whole lot of positivity about the Pagula family, and there's good reason to. And I'm not intending to shoot any of that in the foot or try to disparage the family by saying that maybe they, they don't mean the things that they're saying. It's to point out the fact that other people have said similar things over the course of history. At any point in time, did it seem leading up to the actual negotiations that there was a chance he wasn't going to negotiate with the city of St. Louis and with St. Louis County in good faith? No, there was never a thought that he wouldn't. I think at that point in time, it takes over in 2010, 2011, you start hearing whispers about L.A., how he feels about L.A., tries to buy the Dodgers, 
there's no real thought process in St. Louis, and this is actually a problem, by the way, that he would pick up and leave the team. And when things started getting serious, it, that was never still a major, major, major issue. I remember so many journalists there talking about, don't worry, he says he's a Missouri guy, he's not going anywhere. And at first, man, I was angry. I thought these guys were basically profiteering in fake news. And mm -hmm. years later, having a little bit of time to think it through, I think they were just naive. I think they were so bought in the idea that he was this Missouri guy that they weren't willing to look at the other side of this man, and that is he just bought an NFL franchise worth hundreds of millions of dollars. That is his business, and his number one job as the owner of that business is to maximize profit and raise the prestige of your franchise. Well, you don't go out there and do that without those goals in mind. Well, exactly, and and that naivety you're talking about can extend to can extend to the extend to the fan base. I mean, we just spent a significant amount of tonight's podcast laying out the very just a handful of the realistic hurdles currently facing the team and obtaining public money to fund any part of a new stadium operation. Were fans of the Rams aware of the financial implications of a mid-market city in America trying to placate not one? Not two, but three professional sports teams. I think they were. I think they also thought that what will happen is something similar to what happened in 2004. So for those that don't know, when the Rams moved to St. Louis, there was a poison pill in their lease. Okay, And that poison pill was you have to keep that stadium, the Edward Jones Dome, within the top <laughs> quarter of all NFL stadiums or else – the Rams are allowed to leave the lease, opt out of the lease. So 1995, 96, 97, 98, all those years passing to 2004, and all of a sudden then-owner Georgia Frontier has this choice. Well, what does she do? Well, she decides to go ahead and exchange for a few little things, waive the fee. Now, this is my beef with St. Louis, not the people, but with the politicians there. This is my beef with the journalists there. At this point in time, you knew at some point you have to address the stadium. You have to get it within the top quarter because in it was 10 written years. That so way it into in the contract. Years. So that verbiage was kind of quietly backdoored into the contract. You know, it was a poison average... pill, and it was negotiated by the same guy, John Shaw, who helped the team move to begin with. <laughs> okay. All right. So from the very beginning – the Rams had an out. And St. Louis was so desperate for a football team, they agreed to that out. Man, that's crazy to me. And I guess it, it, there again, it underscores the fact that these negotiations taking place, fans care about headlines. They don't so much pay attention to the nuts and bolts, which ultimately dictate the success or failure of these kinds of things. So, Well, there were several fans, though, Drew, that did actually pay attention to it. And even so, still... They were probably cried the down. They, they were probably cried down, though, by a lot of people as just being, well, you're, when you say things that are unpopular, people have, you know, they, they go against what people want to hear. I mean, we deal with it locally. Some of the people who said some things that were accurate, they were unpopular, they get decried as a loser. You're a hack. You're just a, well, you're, yeah. you're, you're a yeah. hate monger. You're one of these things. The fact Drew, is. I was called all of those things. <laughs> I was called all those things. I, I know you were, sir. So Wait. I had people. 
look, there were so there were people who were so unwilling to at least hear me out as I was saying this to them that they threatened my job. I had I had I had threats on my family at one point during this whole process. I kid you not. Judging from the state uh, of things here in 2019, I'm not shocked by that. <laughs> so, but the big thing I'm trying to get across too is the 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 wording they always fell back on was. Stan Kroenke is a Missouri guy. He told us he's staying. Well, and see, that's it. Because all you have is the word of a guy who you trust. You trust because he looks like he's the guy who came in and saved the day. So, of course, why wouldn't you trust that guy? Now, I want to take a step forward and look at the state of sports in St. Louis. I think when you look back at what happened to you guys, it was unrealistic for St. Louis to believe it could support three professional sports franchises with publicly subsidized stadiums. And here's why. Economic household income, it's remained lower tier in St. Louis County and the city. I mean, you're talking about a city that's lower tier across, you know, similar sized cities and across most of America. High high household income of 61,000 and a low of 54,000 from 2005 to 2017. And they have population fluctuation issues. You know, as jobs and companies come and go, so do people, which sounds an awful lot like the situation that I just laid out for Buffalo. I mean, we, we've lost one of the few Fortune 500 companies we had. We're having a hard time retaining employers, large corporate entities here in Buffalo. Our population has decreased by half since our stadium was, our current stadium was built. And then when you look at the, the St. Louis area, the one thing that I find interesting, they have multiple relocations throughout their history. So I have to ask this question of you, since you seem to know that market a little bit. Baseball is probably sport number 1A, correct? Correct. Okay. So what was this desire to have a football team? You had a hockey team. You had a baseball team that the whole city rallies behind. What was the desire to bring in the football team in the first place? The pain of losing the Cardinals. When they lost the St. Louis Cardinals in 1987, okay. it really jacked up that city. and it, They basically made a commitment from that point forward to getting the NFL back. And that's why they're willing to take pretty much any deal that was offered them in terms of getting the Rams there. It was almost desperation. I mean, that's really what happened. See, and that's scary to me because you can't be desperate when it comes to trying to plan out the future of public money that you're investing into these types of things. And in terms of a fan base, it's just like, look, we have to have this at all costs because that'll make you, that'll make politicians do crazy things. If they think that, hey, if I'm the guy who's tied to this idea that I brought in a football team, I'm going to be championed. And if I'm the guy who let them walk, I'm going to be villainized publicly. It's going to be the end of my political career. So it is for everybody involved. It's a dicey proposition. Now, around the time that negotiations for a new St. Louis stadium actually started, what was the just the tenor around it. Now, I know that there's a convention and sports complex authority in that county that kind of oversaw all of that stuff. From the get-go, it seems like they pitched a lot of low-ball offers to the Rams. I mean, did that? Did they really want to get a deal done? They did, but in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, the attitude they came in there to those negotiations was one of entitlement. They simply believed that we are entitled to this team here and that the, they are, the Rams are going to do things the way they want them done. 
which is against the actual lease, which was against the lease. The lease had was very clear. You have to keep it in there, and it's the CBC's responsibility to maintain and upgrade that stadium. So here they go. They go out there, and they throw these low-ball things out, and they want the Rams to pay a significant portion, around half. The numbers, the exact numbers escape me, but around half, close to 50%. I think it was, I think it was 52 I could be wrong, but right in that ballpark, in terms of numbers, they want the Rams to pay for that. That's not in the lease. And the, and the Rams are like, um, that's not the lease. <laughs> the lease so, is you're going to make sure this stadium works, and we're going to keep filling it with people and paying for the taxes and the other things that come up. It's your job to bear yeah. the brunt of this, because that's how so it was what negotiated. Happens, there was one other option in that lease, though. Okay, That lease basically said when you're negotiating over what actually makes it a Tier 1 stadium – you can go to arbitration. And with arbitration, the Rams put their offer out there, their best offer, okay? And the CVC is supposed to put their best offer out there. And then the commission will choose between those offers. And the Rams went all out. They, they created this brand new, um, basically all the bells and whistles. It was very clear that Kroenke's goal was, I want to, I don't just want a new stadium. He wants I want to make stadium. sure he wants Jerry world 2.0. Well, not, not as much as that, but he wanted to be able to host a super bowl, host okay. final fours. The design of that new stadium was very clearly geared towards that. Okay. And the CVC response were two really low ball offers and it made it really easy for the arbitrators to decide in favor of the Rams because the, all the upgrades that the CBC offered, A, they still wanted the Rams to pay for part of it, and B, they were looking for, well, how do I say it? They were looking to get away with it again. They got away with it once in 2004. They were looking for a way to get out of it again essentially and not make it a first. Essentially guilt the owners to overlook this, uh, this mandate yeah. that they had to – they had to pony up some money, and they had to retrofit. They had to refit this thing. So yeah, and in, in the process of this, it breaks down to, to disputes over tax revenue. Uh, at, that, at that point, the Rams said, "Hey, we're going to go over to London and play a game." And fans were ticked about that. They eventually backed off that commitment for a while. And once that they ruled in favor of the Rams, now it became a real problem because you knew no matter what, either they have to build a stadium or stands gone. See, and that's and that's where things get dicey because you're talking about again. There's a lot of posturing that goes on during this process. So, but everything that I was able to read in my research of this St. Louis situation, since their household income and ours pretty similar, population issues pretty similar, they are the group that I'm looking at as a not not an apples to apples because they're never going to be the same. I mean, we're not St. Louis, Missouri. We, we don't have a rapper named Nelly. We don't have a cool archway. And we've got a waterfall, and that's pretty cool. But outside of that, we, that and chicken wings is about all we have going for us on a national scale. So, But when you look at it, they're similar enough that I've tried to look at that as the model of this is how this could break. They inevitably go to arbitration, and they reach this impasse. Now, I just I think about it in my head, and I say to myself, well, Yes, the Rams, I don't know if they were negotiating in good faith because you don't just, they claim if you were to hear them tell it that they didn't start exploring other options until after the city and county proved to be uncooperative. 
But Chris, you and I both know you don't go buy 60 acres of land. You don't just trip and fall into it. You don't buy 60 acres of land in California by accident. No, that happened. That was thought out. It was planned. It was a, it was a calculated thing. And I think that they had it as their ace in their back pocket just in case things went south. So with that, obviously, they come to this massive impasse. And there's this letter to the media that the Rams give out, which I got to say, as somebody who likes to, sh- I mean, you, Derek, you haven't gotten to know me that well. I love nothing more than buzzing the tower on somebody. If I'm pissed <laughs> off at somebody, there's nothing I like more than a shot across the bow, a good one. Just to let them know, look, now you're going to understand exactly how pissed off at you I am before whatever terrible thing is coming happens. The Rams released this letter to the media, local media, and national media, I guess. It inevitably filters its way out there. Just a scathing rebuke of everything the city had been trying to do, accusing them of being cheap, accusing them of not negotiating in good faith in terms of their fan base and how fans should be ashamed <laughs> pointing out attendance issues, uh, just just the city's inability to support multiple pro franchises. I mean, when that happened, was that to you kind of the death knell to this whole thing? Well, I thought the death knell was when they bought the property in Hollywood Park. Okay, so that so, I see, that that was had, it. so that came before the letter. Yeah, well, I think it's really important to back up here and. You have to really go back to the question of the Rams, did they did they themselves operate in good faith or not? And the answer depends on who you talk to. If you talk to the Rams, they're going to say, listen, we followed the lease to a T. We dotted the I's, we crossed the T's, we did everything we were supposed to do, and the city of St. Louis didn't. When the city of St. Louis didn't do what they were supposed to do, we had to go about our own plans. You can make that argument, and it's a fair argument. St. Louis can say, hey, listen, you planned this out a while ago, (laughs) and you were never going to stay. But the reality is this. No matter how you frame it, no matter what letters are put out there, no matter how anybody wants to talk about it, if St. Louis originally meets the terms of that lease, they're still in St. Louis. No matter how badly Stan Kroenke won the lease. Wow. So, and I mean, I guess that's where we land on this, is that they could have kept them there. Now, there's a lot of reasons that go into, I'm sure there's a lot of things that go into why they didn't. And I'm sure there's a lot of economic realities that the city doesn't want to, the city can't just come out and point to, point to and say, look, we can't keep the team because you people don't make enough money. <laughs> we can't keep well, the team because we don't have corporate sponsorship because corporations don't want to operate in St. Louis. Well, people need to understand when it comes down to what happened out there with Kroenke and with the city is, the city also played this game of, hey, let's go ahead and hide our issues by shaming the Rams. So they were on this offensive, putting all the blame on the Rams, and while it, while basically not saying anything about the issues they have with the actual city itself. There was a Forbes article that came out around 2012 that mm-hmm. labeled St. Louis as, a, I believe, the seventh most stretched city, sports city in the country. And it's because of all those issues. They can't pay for hospitals. They can't pay for public infrastructure. They can't pay for anything. But the bigger thing I want to go back to is back to 2004. And this is what really burns me on the issue is in 2004, the city of St. Louis knew that in 10 years they would have to deal with this. And for 10 years they did nothing. 
They just expect the Kroenke to stay. They lowball Kroenke in negotiations, and they wonder why Kroenke burns them on the way out. Well, Kroenke had to take care of his team. This does not mean Kroenke's innocent, by the way. He did not communicate well. I mean, you could, I'm really sure that at some point they lied. He lied or his people lied to St. Louis. But on the same token, when you have to protect your business and your franchise, you got to do what you got to do. And if anybody thinks that this is all the Rams' fault, it has a serious issue here. City of St. Louis botched this up as well, and too many people are not willing to say, St. Louis, you messed up. Well, and that's and that's a big piece to this. And you just said something that – because, again, we just got done outlining the fact that as a city, Buffalo has issues. Buffalo has real issues, not small ones. They're sizable. And so if – I mean, we just touched on the tip of the iceberg, but the fact is is that if you're not taking care of infrastructure things, common things, things that most cities have a handle on, you're going to need money for things other than professional sports stadiums. So it's hard for you to villainize the team for being a business because at the end of the day, that's what they are. So to take this now after, you know, seeing the fallout of it and just the, them leaving St. Louis and St. Louis trying to paint the picture of it's all their fault, but people in the know, you know, people in the know like Forbes pointing to the fact that the city had opportunities here and they, they squandered a lot of them. And also the fact you t- it's interesting to me you touched on a list of the because uh, we talk about Forbes, Buffalo is fifth on that same list you just talked about of vulnerable sports cities for both of our professional sports teams because we don't have the population or income level that dictates you should have one sports team. You know they have a metric. They say listen based on household income and population we have a metric that we figure out how many sports teams you can successfully uh, support. We come in at 0.5, which means we are 1.5 sports teams over what we could financially support. So it sounds an awful lot like we're sitting in similar boats. So through that lens and with your experience, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Buffalo situation. Because from where I sit, it's not exactly the same. It's similar, but not exactly the same. Where St. Louis kind of rested on its laurels and just figured it could skate by with, hey, I'm sure they'll give us a pass when the next when the next bite at the apple comes for this, hey, we need a new top-tier stadium. Two things work in our benefit. First of all, local politicians have been very active on this subject. You know, it's it's been talked about. We have local politicians currently in office who have been involved in the process of keeping the bills here for a significant amount of time. The second one is the fact that you're talking about something here in New York where we only have one NFL franchise and we have an NHL franchise that honestly, if you want to talk about operating costs and what it costs to operate them both, it's nowhere near what a baseball team would cost. It's nowhere near what just what that operating load looks like. So with that, that gives me a little bit of hope in your experience. Looking as an outsider, what do you think about the Buffalo Bills' current situation? I think the Buffalo Bills situation is much more tenable. I think it's much. I think they have a much better chance of keeping the team than St. Louis did. I think that in that situation, you have two different owners here who had different ideas. Kroenke wanted the big stuff. Kroenke wanted to play big. You'll notice when Kroenke had Kroenke could have built a stadium in Missouri if he wanted to. 
and say he went and built his, his cathedral out in California. He didn't believe in the market out there. Meanwhile, your owner is talking about a more Buffalo-style, lower-scale <laughs> palace out there. So his mindset's a little bit different. He's looking at it and going, you know what, I want something to fit this area. That said, he has a business to run, and I read an article while getting ready for this interview. Uh, Kyle, you know, I think it was from Touchdown Wire, a Buffalo fan wrote it, and the article to me really was off-putting. And the reason why is that the author just assumed that they're not going to leave. Even matter of fact, the way he wrote it is here. I'll quote. It's Michael Colangelo from Touchdown Wire. He writes, here's the problem for the Bills. They kind of lack leverage when it comes to their desire for a new stadium in upstate New York. People kind of know they aren't going to move from Buffalo since the Pigalas also own the NHL Sabres. And if they move from the Bills, they would definitely have to sell the team and probably move as far away as possible, etc. So automatically, he's kicking off this article by pretty much poo-pooing any idea this team actually has to leave and basically Pagalas is stuck there. I'm going to say it flat out. That's the same kind of stuff that St. Louis's journalists wrote before this all went down and they end up with mud in their faces. Well, and exactly. And that's why I'm not over here trying to be a wet blanket. I'm not trying to be chicken little telling people the sky is falling. I want our listeners to be more educated than anybody else's because this is a subject I'm a complete fucking nerd about. I'll admit it. I... My wife the other night looks at me and she goes, what are you doing over there? I'm on my laptop. She's watching some cupcake baking competition show. And I'm furiously pouring over PDF files of the Erie County Water Authority's last three years worth of maintenance reports and their annual revenue reporting. And all of a sudden, because I want to see how how the county is doing. How is the state going to pay for this? I want to find something that tells me that, hey, everything's going to be okay. And so far, I haven't found it, and I'm going to keep digging until I do. Because I'm a fan, and I don't want to lose the team that I've supported for my entire life, that I've been a season ticket holder of for decades, but I also I don't want to be the one walking around like a babe in the woods when D-Day comes, and it's Terry Pagula and his company writing a scathing letter about the state of things here in Buffalo. <laughs> well, I... I would look at it this way, Drew, and think, Go, it, it, just stop at the ranch for a second. Go back to Art Modell and the Browns, which I lived through as well, by the way. Jesus. Okay. What? Maybe it's um, you. Maybe you're just a <laughs> You know, I'm a North, I mean, I, I, when I moved home, I moved to Northeast Ohio, so I went through that move and saw all my, my buddies lose their favorite team. Okay? I've read up on the Houston Oilers move. I've seen all these franchises do what they did, okay? And the one thing that always seemed to happen was – there was always somebody who was naive and didn't believe these people would actually move. And they took it for granted. This team, it bothers me. This is what bothers me. And this is not an attack on St. Louis, by the way. Okay, it's not an attack on any city. This is a general statement. It bothers me that cities assume that because the team has been there as long as they have, that they're going to stay there. And they ignore the fact that these teams are businesses. And like any company that can move for a better deal, they will move. That's why comp- we have companies that started off, RCA was in Indianapolis, now they're in Mexico for crying out loud, sending stuff back to us. That's, that's the nature of the game, and you have to meet that challenge if you want to keep them. For the Bills, though, I honestly believe the impression that I'm getting is he really wants to work it out here, but on the same token, he's really limited in what he can do. 
He really is. I don't know. I mean, we've touched on that ad nauseum about how leveraged he may be, about all the associations with, you know, just the new ownership, acquiring an NFL franchise, the debt you take on when you do it. So, you know what, to your point, it is, it's worth staying apprised of and it's worth not being naive about. And I very much appreciate the fact that you came on with us tonight to shed a little light on what went on behind the scenes in St. Louis and give not only us, but our listeners something they can think about, something to chew over as these coming, you know, as negotiations start over the course of the next few months. Derek, I appreciate you coming on the show tonight so much. Um, why don't you tell all of our listeners where they can find your work? Because guys, Rams talk, it's great. He touches, he he covers the Rams, but he likes to touch on these NFL issues. And I enjoy reading his work. Where can they find your stuff? Well, if I could, just one thing. I want to leave people with one point, okay? And that is this, if that's okay with you guys. Okay. All right. The floor is yours, sir. So what I want people to know is read, listen, you know, follow your journalists, but beware that these journalists who recover the story, they can be just as naive as St. Louis journalists were. They could they could be misleading. You need to be informed. You need to know the facts, and you need to be ready to step in and be active. I just watched the Columbus crew basically be forced to stay here in Columbus, Ohio, because of what they, the state of the crew movement, where the fans jumped in at the right time, found new investors, and saved that team just as they were about to walk out the door to Austin. It can happen. And so fans need to be aware of the issue. If I'm, if I'm the fan base right now, I am banding together. I'm holding rallies. Even now, and making it known, listen, we're here to save this team, keep it here, to find a way. Let's find a way as a community instead of just buying what people are selling that they won't move, they won't be active in it. And if you do, you have a better chance of keeping this team than if it's just ignored until the end. Well, Chris, I'll tell you this. I'm a guy who's always been looking for a hill to die on. This seems like a pretty good one, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if we gotta, if I gotta go out in a blaze of glory, like like the movie Young Guns, that seems like a way to do it. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. Tell all of our listeners where they can find your work because I know, for my own, just for my own purposes, I love following the stuff you guys put out. All right, so we have three podcasts on network. We have Rams Talk Radio, which is my show. Uh, Steve and Johnny have butting heads, and then we have our Rams on Central, which is basically our rated R podcast. Yes, it's a bunch of guys being huge, massive jerks to the other people and themselves. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. Uh, we, our work is at RamsTalk.net. We do cover a lot of NFL, actually. We do try and put it, and get our thoughts, especially on the podcast. And then also, I have a, a baseball podcast covering the Angels, talking Halos. Find me on Twitter at DC Apollo. Now, folks, I understand that sounds like a whole lot of doom and fucking gloom. I get it, but I'm not here to be the bearer of bad news. I just want to—I want people to be aware in the spirit of what journalism is supposed to be. Educate yourself. It's being fair and balanced, and I want to tell both sides of the story. There are some positive takeaways here, and there's some things that make this whole new stadium endeavor not exactly impossible. First of all, this team has untapped revenue streams. Chris, you look at what the team is doing right now with this Tailgate Village initiative, right? Ugh. Yeah, I know. You scoff at it, and so do a lot of other fans. But you know what they don't see? The bigger picture here, Green Bay, the only team with a smaller population size than Buffalo, operates 
what they call the Johnsonville Tailgate Village. They sold the naming rights to this thing to Johnsonville Sausage, which made the team a lot of revenue. It's essentially an indoor version of what the Bills are trying to do out in the parking lot, based inside of a building that that can fit 2,000 people and can seat 500 comfortably. So who's going to sponsor our tailgate village? Salino and Barnes? (laughs) My point is, you do something like that, Chris, it's going to become an attraction. How many fans do we talk to? who don't know where to go to tailgate when they show up. They want to party pregame. They just don't know where. Yeah, a lot. Well, plus a lot of people think what they see on bar stool, table breaking, is what happens at every tailgate, which happens at less than 1%, and they want to know where that is. It's over on the other side of the stadium, Southwestern and Abbott. My whole point is if you gave people, if you said, look, we're going to give you some high-end food, some, some high-end food options, some everyday food options, affordable beer, we're going to put you indoors, we'll put on a band, we'll throw some music on, we'll do some shit pregame. It's going to be great. Your cost is going to be $10. This tailgate village, 10, 10 bucks to get in the door. The tailgate village in Green Bay has done so well that local bars and restaurants in the area are petitioning against it, having a liquor license, specifically because they don't want it cutting any further into their profits. If you want to talk about unique ways to make money, that's one of them. Yeah. Then you're talking about sports books, sports betting. Okay. The Pagula family was one of three or four just a couple months ago here, including the family that owns Madison Square Garden and the family that owns the Yankee Stadium that sent lobbyists to Albany to go petition the governor to approve sports betting in New York State. And it happened. They approved it. Why? Because sports books are revenue generators, not just for the facility that it takes it on, but also for the state. So it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts this decision, but the fact that the Pagulas were involved with that process says that they really are serious about exploring and this tailgate village. Chris, the Pagulas are sifting through every available option. They're trying to find revenue that has yet to be tapped. Yeah, and if they end up moving, there's going to be backlash with them still owning the Sabres. Well, that too, but I'm just looking at things that we can look to as positives. Second of all, we just spent time talking about all of the hurdles that the county's current financial state and current physical state might pose to the team, right? Yeah, that water. Jesus. Yeah, that's a fucking problem. So, what I'll say is this. There's an opportunity here for Erie County if they really want to take it on and they really want to keep the bills here. You own the land. You own the land that the, that the current stadium sits on and across the street where they have all those parking lots and the bus lot and all that stuff. All of the infrastructure is already there. The conduit, the tunnels, the the what you're gonna upgrade it, but it exists. Like the bridges we were just talking about. It costs six point three million dollars to upgrade seven bridges. Well, you know, speaking of upgrades, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they did just update the facility and sports science at Orchard Park. They did. So that also should be a sign that they're probably gonna stay in OP. So Erie County 
has options. If they want to try to, hey, we can't give you money, but here's what we can do. We can gift you the land. We can gift you the land along with you sign a document that says you can't leave. You build the state. He, Derek just got done talking about poison pills. I've been thinking about this for months. After looking through different contracts and the way they're written and the way the county has dispersed land, Erie County could approach the Buffalo Bills and say, look, you can have the land across the street from your current stadium to build a new stadium on. All of your, Most of your major infrastructure is still there. You just have to reroute it. And for that, you just have to sign a document that's saying, that says you don't get to leave for a, whatever, an agreed upon period of time, at which point we'll hammer out the stipulations. Not only that, but downstate New York and Erie County could combine to invest enough that with private financing and help from the NFL and these other revenue streams and land subsidies that we're talking about, a modest stadium could be accomplished. A modest but modern NFL stadium. I mean, to hear the Pagulas themselves talk about it, I mean, here's what they've left us with, Chris. These are, these are the quotes that I think, I think are most important for fans to hear. The league just, I, I think they more or less want to see something done, you know, one way or the other. And we're, uh, you know, we're one of the smaller markets and uh, any way we can increase, increase our revenue, therefore. The owner of uh, Icon was, was uh, really very much opened my eyes and he said, listen, this is going to be one of the, the biggest, most impactful projects to come in almost 50 years by the time we get around to it. Um, he says, just make sure you keep your eyes wide open. Like, don't, don't, um, I know we all came in with some pre preconceived ideas of what, you know, what it might look like, how much it might cost, where it should go, all those things. And he just said, listen, keep your, um, your eyes, your ears, your, your head wide open uh, because this is going to be a game changer for Western New York. That's Kim and Terry Pagula, buffalobills.com, from the NFL owners' meetings in March. Folks, I think at the end of the day that the Pagulas are going to do their best to do what's in the best interest of this team and this fan base. But I think they're going to put the team first, which is why this is an exercise in protecting ourselves emotionally. I hope we never get to that point. I never hope, I hope that I'm never sitting in the seat that Derek Ciapala is, where he has to sit there and think to himself, oh, shit, I watched this team move from another place to another place. Because I don't know if I could take that. We wouldn't and, have a podcast. And until I know that that's not going to happen, I'm going to continue to be an absolute freak about this topic. And you're all coming for the fucking ride with me because I am the captain on this ship. <laughs> I run this show, and I appreciate the hell out of every single one of you who sticks around through the entire thing week in and week out supporting us. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. It was a lot of fun to get to talk about all this and finally just get this out there. But for right now, we got to go. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger. And this has been the Rockpile Report Podcast. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.